0: So this is the gold standard for detecting causality. We have a single population in the same place doing the same job and we can tell from their answers which ones were using glyphosate and which ones weren't. And this is much better than relying on personal recall that can be swayed by public opinion. And it also had a reasonably large number of participants. So um, what was the results? Well, glyphosate users were found in this study to be no more likely to develop cancer than any other pesticide professionals. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello and welcome to The Rational View. I'm Dr. Al Scott, your host. On this episode, is Monsanto poisoning us the dirt on glyphosate? Now before you listen to this episode, make sure you've listened to my previous episode, Fracas in the Food Supply where I discussed GMOs, organic food, and seed patents. It's a really good lead-in to this one, and they both discuss how technology affects our food supply and our health. What's glyphosate, you may ask? Well, let me tell you. Glyphosate is a chemical that was first patented in 1961 as a descaling and chelating agent. In 1970, enterprising scientists at Monsanto realized that glyphosate was a very effective herbicide, killing green plants indiscriminately. It was patented by Monsanto as an herbicide in 1970. Glyphosate is now the active ingredient in Roundup, the world's most popular herbicide, and has had a history of uh, encounters with government regulatory agencies Uh, to try to determine whether or not it's dangerous to people or not. In 1985, the US Environmental Protection Agency noted that there was suggestive evidence that glyphosate had carcinogenic potential. However, by 1991 the EPA had determined that there was sufficient evidence to classify glyphosate as non-carcinogenic. In 1996, Roundup Ready genetically modified soybeans were introduced commercially by Monsanto. These are soybeans that would survive uh, applications of Roundup uh, while it killed all the weeds around them. So this is the history of Roundup. However, online and around the world, there's a vocal community who demonize Monsanto and believe that the government has colluded with Monsanto to hide the true dangers of Roundup. And they believe that it's a carcinogen and it's responsible for a lot of ills. So what's the truth? Well, the European Commission in 2015 and in 2016, the EPA and the European Chemicals Agency in 2017 all have stated that glyphosate is not likely to be carcinogenic to humans. But the one outlier, in 2015, the World Health Organization, International Agency for Research on Cancer, IARC, classified glyphosate as probably carcinogenic to humans. While their report admitted that there was limited evidence of carcinogenicity in humans, there was some hints that non-Hodgkin's lymphoma could be associated with uh, glyphosate in the environment. What gives? Definitely a dichotomy here. This is a job for the rational view. Thank you for tuning in. If you uh, enjoy my episode, please hit like, uh, send me a comment, uh, and share this episode with your friends. So, the whole process of uh, investigating the health risks of glyphosate has been heavily litigated in the courts, and it's exposed, I think, some of the human foibles behind the science. Following the um, outlier statement by the IARC, or IARC as I'm going to call them, Monsanto uh, was forced by U.S. courts to pay millions in damages to uh people with cancer, which they claim was caused by using Roundup, despite the fact that medical science isn't actually sure what causes it. Notwithstanding this inability of the science community to tie any cancers to glyphosate, juries have come to the rescue, ruling that Roundup is a substantial factor in various cases of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Judges and Juries of peers would not be my optimum choice to adjudicate on matters of science, especially looking at what's going on today. Chemophobia is widespread in the public's eye. And I think this is evidenced by the popularity of, say, the organic food movement, the explosion of funding for anti-pesticide, anti-chemical, anti-Wi-Fi lobbyists, and the public's unquestioning acceptance of homeopathy, alternative healing, and anti-vaccine success. Monsanto also is not all unicorns and rainbows. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're undergoing some public stonings for some of their morally shady corporate practices and really aren't what I would say a model defendant in the courts. Monsanto has been spending uh, an average of about six million dollars a year lobbying in favor of Roundup and uh, and has used access to information to request data directly from scientists who are responsible for the IARC ruling uh, as a possible carcinogen. Uh, And this is seen as pressure tactics. But Monsanto's actions are all relatively tame compared to what we see from anti-GMO enthusiasts and activists who've gone after University of Florida plant geneticist Kevin Fulta for uh, doing public outreach in favor of GMOs. So yes, Monsanto did try to defend itself and promote its products. This is not illegal. And they spent a lot of money marketing their product. Unfortunately for Monsanto, this seems like it wasn't enough. Several non-government organizations with combined budgets over 200 million dollars have all stated that they directly oppose whatever Monsanto does. and. Oh, well, by the way, we're also against the use of synthetic pesticides. In fact, it's surprisingly high up on the hit list of many of these NGOs in terms of uh, getting rid of uh, things. Uh, you know, climate change and, and glyphosate seem to be the top two in a lot of cases, strangely. Cases of, of retirees getting cancer are tragic and, and often draw huge settlements from human juries if a scapegoat like Monsanto is readily available uh, despite the evidence. As I've said before, a tragic anecdote, of course, is more convincing to most folks than dry science papers, especially so if there are enough uh, papers out there that both sides can cherry-pick favorable peer-reviewed studies. Now, over the course of the uh, Roundup litigations, wads of internal Monsanto communications and emails were released to the public in 2017, Uh, and this was uh, known as the Monsanto Papers. And this contains some embarrassing information, shall we say. Court documents revealed that Monsanto has sponsored several scientific review studies through intermediaries, probably to ensure that industrial influence would be hidden. They admitted to ghostwriting of articles published in scientific toxicology journals and in the lay media. These are PR stunts. They aren't alone, however, in spending money to meddle in the scientific process. Other glyphosate studies have been found to be funded by class-action lawyer groups, trying to discredit Monsanto. The IARC Scientific Review Panel actually included an anti-pesticide activist. So, I think both sides have their hands a little bit dirty. And certainly not everything that's been done is above board. And unfortunately, the inclusion of courts of law into issues of science tends to obscure the truth more than illuminate it, in my opinion. As, of course, people will clam up for fear of being sued as soon as something becomes um, politicized or, or polarized, and uh, obviously people don't want to have their professional reputations ruined by uh, the court of the internet. What can be depended on, however, in my opinion, is that science in the long run is self-correcting, and any particular study in isolation, even though it was biased, is not gonna be treated as dogma until it is successfully reproduced, uh, and preferably by an independent group. Science is self-correcting over the long run. That's why we don't jump at the first study that seems to show evidence of one thing or the other. And despite the poor appearance of uh, industry-funded scientific studies, the results provided by studies funded by Monsanto are broadly in line with results from independent groups. And this goes for most industry-funded science. Monsanto hasn't asked its scientists to fudge the data. The Monsanto papers reveal scientists in Monsanto requesting to put their names to the sponsored work and being denied due to the fear of public backlash. This shows that these scientists are proud of the scientific work that's being done. So despite the public perception, conflicts of interest typically are not reflected in the scientific data. This would more likely be to appear in the discussion of results and spinning of the conclusions or in the selection of which areas of research to pursue uh, to favor their product so the upshot of all this is that uh, Bayer uh, purchased monsanto and in, in june of this year 2020 uh, under pressure of multiple jury damage awards agreed to a 10 billion dollar out-of-court settlement uh, as a result of a number of class-action lawsuits alleging that Roundup had caused uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancers. Um, so basically they, they paid them off with no uh, admission of guilt. The question remains, though, is glyphosate dangerous or is this a case of an overzealous reaction in defense of a public good? Well, what do we know about glyphosate? What do we know scientifically? Glyphosate itself is very low toxicity, especially in animals. Of course, it's toxic to plants. The glyphosate LD50, this is the lowest dose required to kill half of the animal test subjects. It's higher than salt and baking soda. So that means it's less toxic than salt, less toxic than baking soda. It is 560 times less toxic than vitamin D, which people ingest willingly. It works by inhibiting a critical enzyme responsible for amino acid synthesis in green plants. So basically the building blocks of proteins are blocked by glyphosate in plants, but not in animals. The particular pathway that's blocked is different in animals and, and Random doesn't have an effect on it. So it's therefore very well targeted to only affect actively growing green plants. And it breaks down in the environment with a half-life that varies between a few days to a few months. It doesn't seem to bioaccumulate in the food chain. And in fact, one of its breakdown products, AMPA, uh, which is short for a much longer name that I'm not going to tell you, has been identified in a study with potential prostate cancer prevention properties so you know single studies can go either way it is commonly sprayed on roundup ready food crops and it's also been used around the world to dry out grains prior to harvest it basically if they're not roundup ready you can spray roundup on it it kills all the vegetation and they dry out so they're not going to get mold on them while you store them Trace amounts of glyphosate are commonly found in breakfast cereals and this has been widely reported. However, most of them are at less than part per million levels, so less than one part in a million of the cereal is is Roundup in most cases. The EPA has set safety limits of 30 parts per million of of, uh, glyphosate in food based on the fact that it's not toxic. The benefits of glyphosate are impressive. Farmers using glyphosate are able to reduce their use of much more toxic traditional pesticides. Using Roundup-ready crops allows for zero-tillage agriculture. You don't have to um, use a disc to to turn over your weeds. You reduce soil erosion, uh, increase carbon sequestration in the soils, and decrease the use of fossil fuels in farming. There have recently been claims, however, that the combination of surfactants and adjuvants with glyphosate in its Roundup formulation can increase acute toxicity. And this is somewhat important because all of many of the scientific studies have focused on the active, so-called active ingredient glyphosate, but uh, the chemists at Monsanto add like a surfactant, like a soap that allows it to stick to the leaves of plants so it doesn't fall off, and adds uh, certain chemicals that are supposed to improve its performance and these mixtures have not been as closely studied for for their health effects as uh, glyphosate and it turns out that these seem to be more toxic when all mixed together. Uh, some people have claimed that roundup acts as an endocrine disruptor in human cells and this is based on in vitro studies, which means in the test tube or in a petri dish so, a line of cells was, was dosed with Roundup and the uh, hormonal distribution was upset. The cells stopped producing the right amount of hormones uh, before they died from, from this application of Roundup. And that can affect, if it happens in vivo, in actual uh, living organisms, it can affect the development of children if the hormones uh, are disrupted. And so this would be a worry This result, however, is maybe not surprising because uh, surfactants are like soaps disrupt cellular membranes in a Petri dish. There's no skin to protect these cells. They're bare and open. So yeah, soaking the cells in soap would also disrupt their functioning. However, Monsanto's lead toxicologist admits in internal company emails released through uh, Discovery that although glyphosate uh, is non-carcinogenic, Roundup has not been tested thoroughly enough to make a similar positive statement. Now this is consistent with the vast majority of chemicals in commercial use today. People don't typically do uh, long-term acute uh, cancer studies uh, unless there's a risk uh, discovered. So new in vivo studies are now underway, especially in Europe, to gather more evidence. I'd like to come back to The dichotomy, however, between the expert review panels and their classification of glyphosate, one as a probable carcinogen and the other as not likely to be a carcinogen. Reviewing the same evidence in 2015, the US EPA said it was not likely to cause cancer and the IARC said that it was likely to cause cancer. When this sort of thing is seen, it is worthwhile to look more closely at the process and other factors that might be influencing the science and the politics and the interpretation of both. There have been at least eight reviews looking at human health and glyphosate science in the last 20 years, and all of them have found no harm to human health caused by normal glyphosate use. Now, critics will say this is because of Monsanto scheming behind the scenes, and uh, Monsanto will say this is because there actually isn't anything uh, wrong with this chemical. The IIRC was an international UN panel, and they seem to have been applying the precautionary principle in their ruling. The IARC decision reviewed both positive and negative reports in the peer-reviewed scientific literature, as they should, and they affirmed that there was limited evidence of glyphosate causing cancer in humans although the animal study evidence uh, was stronger. The IARC based its decision on two large case control studies of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from Canada and the US, and two case control studies from Sweden, which reported statistically significant increased risks of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in association with exposure to glyphosate. And this was after adjusting for exposure to other pesticides. So what does this mean? what is this to the layman? Well, a case control study compares patients who have a disease with similar patients who do not have the disease and the doctors try to look back retrospectively uh, through questionnaires and uh, life history to try to compare the history of exposure of the two groups. So in this case case control studies are not the gold standard. They're considered a low standard of evidence by most scientists. They're not as good as what you would call the gold standard, which is a prospective cohort study, which follows groups of exposed and unexposed people from the start to find out what happens to them later. But these are much more expensive because it's a long time before you get your results. In case control studies, participants may have inaccurate recall on their exposure history, and they may even be swayed by popular media and opinions that they've got from other people that there may be a connection between their disease and an identified causal agent, such as the evil Monsanto. Uh, So this is why case control studies are not seen as a high standard of evidence uh, when compared to uh, the uh, prospective cohort. Now, the EPA released a very detailed report on its decision, and the EPA's standard of evidence was much different than that of the IARC. The EPA was moving forward on the principle of assuming no harm without proof. EPA is a government agency and has a mandate to compare risks and benefits. And the success of domestic industry uh, rides on their decisions, uh, whereas IARC uh, has no such mandate. And this is certainly clear under the current Republican administration. The amended EPA policy is that no chemical will be banned without proof, which is maybe a little bit too far. But anyways, the EPA report includes a pretty focused rebuttal of all the positive claims of carcinogenity in the peer-reviewed literature, Uh, and they also looked at a lot of literature supplied from uh, industrial studies that IARC did not look at. Each positive study in the EPA report is picked apart in in detail, uh, with flaws and shortcomings highlighted, uh, many of them having small sample sizes, uh, confounding factors are always very difficult to control in human studies, unless you have a double-blind human study or a prospective cohort study, which they did. Um, and double-blind studies, of course, would be unethical for looking for safety features of, uh, or safety aspects of a potentially dangerous chemical. And so this was uh, something that sing- was singled out uh, quite a bit in the studies. Now, the EPA report mentions uh, publication bias, and this is uh, where scientists decide to publish one result over another, and this might result in more positive results being put forward, whereas if they don't find anything uh, and people are generally unconcerned with a chemical, then why would they publish more evidence that it's not dangerous? However, the EPA also makes no mention of potential bias from the pesticide and chemical industries testing their own products. So, maybe a bit of a double standard there, hard to say. I want to talk to you about this one gold standard study that uh, the EPA EPA, uh, based much of their results on. The Agricultural Health Study is a prospective cohort study federally financed that followed 57,000 licensed U.S. pesticide workers in the Midwest uh, since the 1990s and followed them to see if they got any diseases. Use of various pesticides by the participants was logged throughout the study. So this is the gold standard for detecting causality. We have a single population in the same place doing the same job, and we can tell from their answers which ones were using glyphosate and which ones weren't. And this is much better than relying on personal recall that can be swayed by public opinion. And it also had a reasonably large number of participants. So um, what was the results? Well... Glyphosate users were found in this study to be no more likely to develop cancer than any other pesticide professionals. So this study showed there's no statistically significant associations with glyphosate use and cancer, including non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So the EPA conclusion stated, based on the weight of evidence, the agency cannot exclude chance and or bias as an explanation for observed associations in the database. Due to study limitation and contradictory results across studies of at least equal quality, a conclusion regarding the association between glyphosate exposure and risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cannot be determined based on the available data. So they basically said that there was not enough data to convict. So the studies that did show effects were the ones that had more questions associated with them, and the best studies showed no effect whatsoever. So the standards of proof between these two organizations are obviously very different. And this begs the question of what standard of safety should we apply as a society? Now, of course, in the U.S., over 40 years from 1976 to 2016, the U.S. banned or heavily regulated only five industrial chemicals introduced into commercial products out of a total of something like 85,000. Most of these approvals were based on data supplied by the manufacturer. Implementing a strong precautionary principle on this scale would have widespread impacts into the economy and would make introduction of new consumer products orders of magnitude more costly. The European Union has adopted as part of the Maastricht Treaty as a basic principle governing environmental policy this this, uh, precautionary principle. Now, the interpretation of this policy has been the source of ongoing heated debate uh, in Europe uh, since that time. So the ultimate difference that I see is that the U.S. approach allows for immediate introduction of novel products and processes until risks are identified, uh, whereas the EU approach is more risk-averse. So the U.S. has basic testing to see, is this killing people right away? No? Okay. Let's give her a shot. So this dichotomy is very interesting, right? Right it may be at the heart of a lot of social issues that we see and and uncertainty over science and how science and safety should be applied in a rational way. And I think this principle is also at the heart of the current environmental climate crisis and why, uh, you know, big oil has been so uh, successful at exploiting this uncertainty. You know, the U.S. regulatory scenario is that unless proof of damage is there, just keep on doing what you're doing. And, and, you know, Big Tobacco played this up as well, very successfully. And the question in the environmental group's mind is, isn't Monsanto and glyphosate a similar case? It certainly would seem that way to people unfamiliar with the science and unable to read the uh, primary literature. And this is a nuanced issue. It's not straightforward that the precautionary principle is best or that we should go ahead and just put things on the market without testing. There's got to be a happy medium here. And this is why we need scientific literacy. And this is why we need scientists. And this is why we have to discuss these things rationally as an informed populace. And not demonize knowledge and expertise. Because it's not easy for the average person to tell the difference between big oil and Uh, spreading lies about climate change, and Monsanto uh, spreading actual research about glyphosate. So it seems to me from looking at the facts and looking at both sides of the argument that the lack of basic scientific literacy in the U.S. population seems to have cost Bayer and Monsanto $10 billion dollars and severely damage their ability to provide society with a safe and non-toxic herbicide. NGO efforts to displace glyphosate, if successful, will undoubtedly result in the use of more environmentally harmful and more toxic pesticides, and lead to more damage and more health concerns. So this is one reason I'd like you to share this episode and provide a review of this podcast. Please help me to spread the rational view. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com the rational view.